This special Answers for Elders podcast honoring military veterans is sponsored by Carriage. For more information about Carriage, the website is C-A-R-E-A-G-E.com. This is Answers for Elders. I'm Chuck Olmstead, and with me today is Marvin Reiner. And Marvin uh, was a radio tech, second class uh, U.S. Navy, retired now. And uh, Marvin, I want to welcome you today to Answers for Elders Radio and uh, have you tell your story. Okay, we're ready to go. (laughs) We are ready to go. Well, you and I just met, so I get a chance to hear your story for the first time. And uh, you and I were just chatting before we started recording uh, about radio stations here in Olympia and Aberdeen. So I'm assuming you grew up in this area. I'm a native of Aberdeen, Washington. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, I graduated from Weatherwax High School in Aberdeen in 1941. And at that time, uh, the boys were joining the National Guard and the uh, Naval Reserve and the uh, the services in general. Yeah. And so, of course, uh, I was like all young people. I was interested in the air, in flying. Uh-huh. But, uh huh. But they disqualified. Uh, qualified me because of depth perception at that time. Interesting. But, but uh, so anyhow, Aberdeen, I uh, was a Boy Scout and a Sea Scout, and uh, I was more interested in the Navy than in anything else. The big ships grew out of Aberdeen, and uh, we were had the uh, World War One Skipper's Barge was our boat for the uh, Sea Scouts in Aberdeen. Interesting. So you would have been born... Uh, 1923. 23. So <clears throat> you went through uh, the Depression. Oh, yes. I grew up in the Depression. And What was I, Aberdeen like during those Depression years? Aberdeen... Uh, <laughs> and Well, I, I can give you stories starting back earlier than that. My parents had a, a, a store in Aberdeen, a one-man store, and uh, they prospered. Uh, well, my mother and father made the choice of Graves Harbor after World War One because Aberdeen and Klamath Falls, Oregon, were the roaring ports after World War One, and so they prospered in Aberdeen in the Roaring Twenties. Hmm. And my father, I can remember uh, the fancy car that he bought in 1929, which was a green Oldsmobile with wire wheels and two wire wheels on the front fenders and a, an add-on trunk on the back end. Then the depression came and he couldn't keep that car. It was not good, so he was back to the Model T and A Fords <laughs> and all of the um, economical vehicles. Yeah, so he's a store owner <clears throat> back in, during the Depression time in Aberdeen. So were they struck hard by the Depression? Very hard because the lumber trade uh, was totally shot down. Aberdeen had, uh, during the heyday of the 20s and the earliers, the greater area had 40 tidewater sawmills operating three shifts a day. Uh, and the population of Aberdeen was the largest in southwest Washington and the biggest shopping district. Wow. And Aberdeen at that time was about 25,000. Hoquim and Cosmopolis, Hoquim was 10, and Cosmopolis was just a few thousand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the county was 50,000. 
Now, uh, later we moved to Olympia, mm -hmm. and uh, the comparison is that during the Depression or the 30s years, Aberdeen was twice the size of Olympia. Olympia was 12,000. Aberdeen was 25,000. Interesting, interesting. So you finished up your high school, though, still in Aberdeen. Aberdeen. In Aberdeen. And mm -hmm. then I wanted to start the University of Washington. I wanted Naval ROTC. And because uh, for, uh, I didn't get into the program, so... Uh, I opted out and attended Grays Arbor College that first year. So, now, if I remember your dates, you said you graduated in 1941, so that would have been about May or June of 41. Yeah, June of 41. And so Pearl Harbor happened just two months December. later. December. Well, or, or, I'm sorry, December, so December. about five months mm -hmm. later. Yes, indeed, so. But you were, you were planning to go to college at that time, so you were 18, Yes, I, and and getting ready to go to college. So you didn't join the service right away. Well, no, I attempted to join Naval ROTC, mm -hmm. and uh, so uh, because I didn't get in on it, so I took uh, my first freshman year at the university at uh, Grace Harbor College mm -hmm. because there was no reason for me to go to the university at the expense of my family. And sure. Aberdeen was still depressed mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. suffering the contingency. Yeah. So what happened after that first year? Well, actually, I think four quarters, I transferred to the University of Washington and began my career, and I took Naval ROTC courses and changed from a business major that I'd started in to what the Navy wanted, an engineering major. And uh, uh, as a student at the University of Washington, concentrating only on going to school, I went from a, <laughs> a, a B-plus student to a straight-A student, mm -hmm. and uh, I was able to do well. And at that point in time, I joined the V-1 Navy program, which was the cadet program at the University of Washington. V-1 means? V-1. V-1. The V1 program, which was um, you stayed in un no, you stayed as a civilian with a deferral, and then they changed a year later. They changed that to the V12 program. If you were surface navy, if you were uh, aerial navy, it was V7, I believe. Mm -hmm. There was V1, V5, V7, and V12. Mm -hmm. Well, that was the same program in uniform at the University of Washington, and so they came to us who had eye problems, which I did. They said, we have too many cadets, uh, uh, and you are no longer eligible for the program. You can have the CBs or you can have a discharge. So I thought about it, two years of college. Uh, as much as I wanted to join the Navy, uh, uh, I wasn't about to become a pick and shovel, <laughs> an engineer mm -hmm. or a business that I was interested in. So I took the discharge and remained at the University of Washington and uh, uh, then waited for the draft because I was younger. I was a younger student. I was 17 when I graduated, not on um, things. So, But at that time, I started uh, with people like Herb Bridge, who became 
the commanding admiral of the 13th Naval District just retired a year or two ago. And uh, another boy from Aberdeen that I graduated, uh, that uh, was my friend in high school mm. in Aberdeen, uh, they, after the war moved to Portland, he became commanding general of the Oregon National Guard. Wow. And when I called up Herb Bridge and I uh, congratulated him on his career, his, he says, well, Marv, you should have stayed in the Navy too, or the Naval Reserve, mm -hmm. and you could have done the same thing. No. <laughs> no. He became the commanding admiral. Wow. I, I, I would love to have done that, but I didn't have the connections. Uh-huh. So did you go on then to finish uh, college? Well, okay. So then I went out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was out for a period of time. And, uh, and I watched the bulletin boards at the University of Washington. And uh, the, uh, they were advertising for radio technicians. I would much rather be in the Navy than in the Army. Mm -hmm. So I boned up, I thought, communications and I took the examinations and was accepted into the program but at that moment of time uh, you didn't enlist anymore you waited until you were drafted I see so I had my Navy papers with me and I went through the draft and I went to the right and my friends from Aberdeen who went at the same time went left to the army mm-hmm and that's the story that I want to tell, too. Yeah. So anyhow, uh, what a radio technician uh, was just a euphemism or just a special name for uh, the radar, which was super secret at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, they took uh, really uh, literally one year to train us uh, in as a radio technician before we came out. So uh, from Aberdeen, we uh, were indoctrinated for, uh, well, let me stop and think. I, the induction center, I believe, was Fort Lewis. We went there and to Seattle. And from Seattle, we got on a train, th those who were selected for this program. And they were gathered from all over the country, from the universities, at the Great Lakes Naval Training Station in mm -hmm. And uh, so we had three weeks, but every time you have say, three weeks, it's four weeks <laughs> with the changes. In the, uh, so uh, Great Lakes, and then we were in Chicago in what was the program called Pre-Radio for Three Weeks, which again was really four weeks. That was at uh, Herzl Junior College. And then uh, I got uh, for the next courses, which was three months, of elementary electricity and uh, radio material, and I got which was on uh, the schools were about four schools all over the country, and most of them were on college campuses. But I got Gulfport, Mississippi, which was the worst of the bases. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and so that was three months uh, in Gulfport. A little bit warmer there than Aberdeen or, oh or Chicago. Well, Chicago uh, can get warm. We but, were in, uh, this was the summertime. We were in Quonset huts, uh, rooms about this size, but the round mm -hmm. buildings with a fan each mm -hmm. side. And this was intense study uh, on the thing. And the paperwork, we had those armchairs, 
and we were so sweaty and lift our arm, the papers would come <laughs> up. <laughs> but yeah. luckily, I got uh, for the six months for the next uh, session. Uh, I got Gulfport, Miss. I got to Treasure Island, uh, San Francisco mm-hmm. Bay, and that was one of the best, yeah. better ones. Although they yeah. they had the East Coast and Chicago for the same programs. Now, when they were using radar at that time, like you said, it just <clears throat> kind of gotten developed. Was that? Uh, did they have radar on ship, or was well, it mostly land based? Uh, we were the technicians. Radar was something that they got from England. You learned all of this 40 mm-hmm. years later, mm-hmm. and you put it together. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, when President Roosevelt uh, supported uh, Britain in the exchange of the 50 uh, old-age destroyers uh, and loaded to the hilt with whatever equipment they could give them, in exchange they got back radar, which was being developed in England. And the uh, conventional radar was uh, low frequency with a gigantic bed spring antennas. Mm -hmm. And the newest thing at that time was called the black box, which was the magnetron for the ultra-high frequency radars. Well, okay, Uh, we'll pick that up again in a minute. Uh, So uh, radar was super secret, in the war, and uh, the first four months, and you figure this all out 40 years later, what they were doing is because this was super secret, they were breaking this into these segments mm-hmm. so that you could be washed out at any time uh, for any reason, and if you had a weak background and you might leak some of this, mm-hmm. uh, you could have been dropped from the program, even though academically you were selected out of the universities you had with uh, your grades mm-hmm. to take this course. This was called Commander Eddie's program. And radar uh, was just being put in, onto the ships, and nobody in the fleet knew anything about radar. Interesting. Uh, so uh, th- th- this was the program for the technicians who were to keep this equipment operating and going. Mm-hmm. We were not operators. We were techs. I see. On the thing. Yeah. So, so they would use radar for, would it be for navigation or was it for enemy detection or for both? All. All of it. And plus fire control. Mm-hmm. Plus IFF. Identification, friend or foe. Because that was the problem with the first radar at Pearl Harbor. The Japanese fleet was detected, but there was a fleet of uh, bombers coming in from the States and they uh, accredited that. uh, I just saw Pearl Harbor Mm -hmm. was replayed here. Mm -hmm. And they, they did detect the Japanese coming in, and they disregarded it as a formation coming from the United States. I see. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyhow, so uh, it was broken into these segments uh, so that at any time they could drop you out if your background might have been Mm -hmm. not up to snuff. Mm -hmm. So where did you end up uh, serving a majority of the war? Okay, all right. Now, so uh, after almost a year of training and oh by the way because uh, this was a select program we went in as seamen first class Mm -hmm. and we came out with the the two stripes Mm -hmm. on the arm which uh, on the thing so uh, 
there were in our group, and they were graduating these groups weekly. There were about 90, and we were the college kids, and uh, uh, they said, well, you can ask for the ship type of ship duty that you want. You won't get it, but you're <laughs> you entitled ask. to ask. <laughs> well, you tell a bunch of college kids that they can ask, so we'll ask. Sure. So uh, there were two fleet boys. See, we came onto this program from the universities, uh, but the fleet boys were able to apply for it from their service. Well, there were two boys there. So I cornered these two guys, and I says, what kind of ship duty do we want? And their story to me was uh, battleships are too big. Destroyers, I mean, carriers are like a city. Mm-hmm. Destroyers and destroyer escorts are too small. Cruiser duty is what you want. Well, the only two out of our group of 95 uh, that got assigned to anything was those two fleet boys who were USN, and we were all USNR. Mm-hmm. Some people will know the difference in that. I mean, we were draftees, mm-hmm. so to speak, and they were enlistees. Mm-hmm. So at any rate, they got the Indianapolis. The Indianapolis took the bomb out and was the last American ship sunk in World right. War Two. And so... Uh, I asked to be on that ship. I didn't make it. You didn't make, wow. And I'm sure (laughs) now you're glad you didn't. Well, okay, so to continue the story, uh, then we were assigned to Pearl Harbor. And at Pearl Harbor, uh, the makeup was for the next invasion hopping uh, on this thing. And uh, so we were transferred to the amphibious navy, which was the landing craft with the ramps and the and that called for the new radar. So another month of radar with the magic box, the magnetron tube, and the small diameter radars, uh, the more advanced systems. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we, uh, rumor was and I was at the amphibious base at uh, YPO Point. And uh, it was rumored that our group was going to be the invasion of the main island of Japan. And uh, the groups that went out ahead of us had their whites issued, uh, taken back, and got the the Marine Greens issues with a carbine. Wow. (laughs) Uh, On the thing, and they were moving on out. Mm -hmm. But off wood. The bomb went off. Mm-hmm. We were very happy because uh, we had heard how tenaciously they had fought. Hmm. The Japanese were fighting, and for their homeland, they would fight even more severely. So. And having interviewed some other vets that were actually in Navy and, and part of the landing craft, <clears throat> they said the same thing, that that you know they were kind of anxious to be part of the amphibious force to go in, but after they... After the drop, bop, bomb was dropped, and they went in and saw what kind of um, armaments and military and um, you know guns that were on the hills and stuff, they recognized that they would have not made it if, yeah. you know. Well, let's backtrack mm-hmm. to my uh, to the time that went in. Mm-hmm. So I went in with this busload of kids from Aber- kids. We were right, uh-huh. uh, 17, 18, 19, 20. Uh, to in the boys who went army uh, got their uh, their basic training were shipped to England and were on those invasions into 
Europe, mm-hmm. is, which, of course, is celebrated. But now, 40 years later, we learn how disastrous they were. Right. And uh, So they were in on D-Day? They went in on E-Day. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my close buddies, uh, and it was, I don't know, 12 weeks, 15 weeks, badly wounded on that deal. And one of those, but one who survived. Wow and made it back to the United States, severely wounded. Mm-hmm. But out of our class of 400, there was over 50 casualties. Mm. 1940, class of 1941. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so getting back, now we'll jump back to Pearl Harbor and uh, Wipeo Point and uh, that, fortunately. So the bomb drops and immediately the war's over. And everything is no longer needed. So, but uh, because uh, I had only been in a year and a half, my priority getting out was about seven months. And this was in 1945. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there was nothing to do. So uh, I'm a young kid and you know I was 19 or 20 at that time and so absolutely nothing to do the base is being shut down and so on so I'm out on the athletic field uh, hitting a punching bag and bouncing that punching bag against me right? Uh, getting tough still doing my jump ups and push ups and all of the physical stuff that uh, we did and I uh, did do something to my internal things. And uh, this was just right after the war, or just uh, within mm. a week or two. Mm. And uh, so uh, suddenly I had severe pains in my stomach. And so I go to the uh, to our base and uh, try and get some help. And they said, oh... They pressed around, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. Here's a handful of APCs. Mm-hmm. Everybody in service knows what APCs are, all-purpose capsules. <laughs> It'll cure anything, huh? It'll cure anything. <laughs> well, that was in the morning. So at noon, I went back again, and I guess they did take a blood test at that time, and they found it normal. But uh, it kept increasingly getting worse. And so two hours later, I'm back at sick bay. And they uh, take a reading again, and the white blood corpuscles is shot up to 100. Hmm. Okay, that, uh, something's wrong here. So they bust me up to IEA Heights, the Navy hospital. Mm-hmm. But uh, at that point, uh, no, and this, uh, by the time I got to the hospital, it was evening, nine, nine, 8 or 9 o'clock. Uh, but they were still receiving marine casualties. And so uh, they gave me a shot of morphine, shoved me aside, and I says, take her. <laughs> of course. Yeah. But of course, I had nothing to say. <laughs> yeah. They're going to do it anyway. Yeah. They're going to do what they want to do. So uh, those Marines, and we all ended up in the same ward, and so I became friends of some of those boys. Mm-hmm. And, and the boy who prepped me for the operation uh, there. Uh, on the thing and so uh, that uh, but the war was over but the casualties were still coming in mm-hmm. 
And, uh, and so that, that's, my career ended up there. So then when, in the Navy at that time, you don't go back until you're fully recovered. Oh, what happened was that uh, you learned afterwards uh, they operated on me the next day for acute appendicitis. Ah. Uh. And what happened, that bouncing and ball and so on, but the appendix hid behind the pelvic bone, and so when the corpsman pressed me, they didn't find the, and determined immediately that it was an appendicitis sure, case. Sure. But it was, uh, I blame it, they, they don't won't say, didn't tell me this, but I blame it on bouncing uh, that heavy punching bag. Mm-hmm. And, like a big medicine uh, ball. <laughs> well, okay, so uh, then I'm assigned, after three weeks, I'm assigned back to the amphibious space. The amphibious space is nothing doing, and I'm stuck. Well, we were assigned like officers because we were trained in specific gear. And uh, so I go over to the assignment in the base. I says, I'm here three, four weeks. Guys are coming in and going out, and I'm sitting here. What's going on? And so uh, you learn a little bit about the system. So uh, on the thing, I says, I'm just out of the hospital, and I'm homesick because it was my ambition to get to the Far East, to get to uh, China and uh, the bases. And I still didn't get assigned out. So the week goes by, and I go back over there again. And he says, you still around? (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, I said, oh, yeah, I'm homesick. I want to go home. (laughs) Uh, Knowing that that's the response that would get me on the next ship. (laughs) Going the other other way. Uh So I was assigned, finally, to the AGC-1. AGC uh, was the community... Uh, group command ship. A meant auxiliary, so it's just one of the freighter type things. Mm -hmm. But what was happening on these invasion flotillas, uh, the kamikazes were gunning for the uh, major ships, and so they took the commands off the battleships and off the carriers. They put them onto these innocuous freighters, and they built 12 of them. Hmm. And on any invasion fleet, there there were three. So three uh, command admirals, the backup, military backup, backup, backup. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so at any rate, uh, and that was good duty. That was the ship that was on all of the invasions, uh, of the island invasions. And the Japanese apparently never recognized that the command center for an invasion flotilla was on an unarmed freighter. Interesting. Huh. That's this is my analysis right, of right. the situation. Yeah, and so uh, the AGC one uh, was my ship. I was on it thirty days, and were dispatched back to the United States. And the uh, AGC one was to be the communication ship uh, for the atomic bomb blasts after the war. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, oh. Radio technicians, our group on board that ship was 40. There was that much electronic equipment on board that Interesting. ship that there were 40 radio technicians. We were actually radar technicians or electronic technicians or whatever they are today, but at that time this was super secret. Sure, sure. 
And uh, I, I forgot to mention that in San Francisco at Pearl, uh, in training, if our simplified notebooks were not in the vaults at night, the base was locked up. Hmm. They didn't want those things floating around. Interesting. Well, that, it would have been top secret. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what happens after the war? So the the war ends, and then you're how the much longer ends before and you? I finally am assigned to the AGC one. Uh huh. That's my ship, and so, oh, uh, so then the war is over, and so our forty radio technicians are assembled, and the officer makes the pitch. He says, uh, if anybody will re-enlist. Uh, you can get an advance in grade. You can get thirty-day leave. The incentives for enlisting or mm-hmm. into the naval reserve. One question is: But now remember that these radio technicians, radar technicians, who we were, were basically all college kids or brighter kids because you couldn't get into this stuff unless you had the ability to do it. Mm-hmm. And I will add um, on thing. So one question has popped back. Are you re-enlisting? <laughs> Not one of our 40 <laughs> radio techs off of the AGC-1 re-enlisted. But the AGC-1 was the first of its uh, uh, of these command ships, group command ships, built on the East Coast and had a lot of, uh, this is Navy terminology, plank holders, original crew who were assigned to the ship even before it was, while it was being mm-hmm. built. Mm-hmm. On the thing, yeah. Uh, so, uh, then, what's it like being out in? Did you mind being out at sea, out in the middle of nowhere, just water? <laughs> did that bother you? I joined the navy to see the world, <laughs> and what did I see? I saw the sea. So I saw the sea, and not much else. <laughs> well, but really, I didn't see the sea. Uh, what, uh, you that were, ship was with the fleet, uh-huh. with the invasion fleets. And carried Admiral, uh, I lost his name, uh-huh. uh, the, uh, one of the admirals, this was his ship. And when, when the groups were moved to each island. Now, with the importance of radar during the war is you couldn't have maneuvered those ships and those fleets without radar because of the positioning uh, as well as the detection and the... And mm-hmm. Uh, on the thing because uh, with lights out and no signals and anything else uh, so the use for radar uh, was maneuvers as well as detection and identification Mm -hmm. and jamming because the the Germans and the Japanese captured some of our vehicles and exploited our research we got this research from England and we exploited it here and and what was so interesting, the magnetron tube, the black box, which was so secret during World War II, uh, was a device that a Japanese physicist developed but not used for anything. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, the English uh, decided that they could convert radar from low frequency to high frequency, and it's no longer... Oh, the last lecture we had... Uh, uh, in Treasure Island when we graduated. Everything we have taught you for the past year is out of date. <laughs> the Bell Laboratories has developed a germanium diode, a solid, which is now a solid-state transistor, but 
uh, vacuum tube technology, which we have taught you, is all out of date. Mm. This new technology has come in. But we did, so when I got to Pearl and we got assigned to the amphibious navy, then we went to school for another three weeks and learned uh, the magnetron uh, and the small craft radar, the uh, fire control and uh, aviation and that. And small ship radar, because a small ship can't carry a gigantic antenna. Right. The gigantic antenna, the waves will search over so they'll catch lower aircraft, where the uh, ultra-high-frequency radar is directed, and it's just line of sight. I see. It doesn't curve mm-hmm. into the... Deals. Well, Marvin, we have about just a couple minutes remaining. So, uh, if we fast forward a little bit, so when did, uh, what year then did you finally were you able to come home? Well, I came out in 1946 in June, and uh, started back at the University of Washington, and I took the transcripts of the. Uh, the of the work that they'd done in the Navy, they gave us gave me forty five college credit hours for mm. it. it was that intense work mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so uh forty six uh and I had two years of college when I went in but uh, but I was back no longer in the engineering school I was back to business major, and so I graduated on hours and had a g i bill left. And then I had looked for a graduate school to do an MBA. And uh, the University of Washington uh, wanted two years to do a master's. And uh, remember, the war was over and we were hardworking. Uh, so I took the summer session at the University of Wisconsin. And that was a fun year for me after the war. So you were in Madison? So I went to Madison for mm-hmm. a summer session. And there, the, they wanted two years, too, so I went over to Northwestern University in Chicago, mm-hmm. and they wanted two years. And one of my relatives, my father's relatives, my father grew up in the streets of Chicago, <laughs> uh, said, uh, had graduated in the University of Chicago, and they said they've got a smaller business school, and uh, uh, they would uh, go over and talk to them. So I went over and talked to them, and they outlined a program that I could do in one year, and that's the amount of GI Bill I had left. <laughs> there you go. So I did a master's at the University of Chicago in one year. Mm-hmm. Out of that, what, uh, what did you do with your career after that? Well, uh, this was 1949. And that was a lull year in business, but I had a, a University of Washington degree and a University of Chicago degree. I was one of four or five in my class, again, of about 190 uh-huh. students who even had a job offer. And I, at that moment in time, I wanted to be a CPA, and uh, the advice of the uh, the professor at the University of Chicago was, go for the big independents, don't go for the big national uh, firms, and so they gave me a job for two hundred dollars a month for a year. But I, uh, my folks, my mother got me, uh, my father to buy me a car for graduation. Uh-huh. So I picked it up in Detroit and drove it home to say thank you. And my dad was ailing, and I never got out of Aberdeen. My career. <laughs> Didn't utilize my college. Or Interesting. Yeah. I was back to a, a one-man operation, uh-huh. <laughs> which we built up. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, what an interesting life. Okay, so uh, I did mention uh, Herb Bridge and Mm -hmm. uh, Fred Rosenbaum, who were my buddies way back and made it to the top. Yeah. But I only... (laughs) Do you ever get to connect with any of those guys? Oh, yeah. From from Aberdeen? Uh, Mm -hmm. I did um, on the thing. Yeah, well, tell me, we've got about, we've got two minutes left here. Uh, tell me about your move to, to Patriot's Landing. How did, you, how did you come here to live here at Patriot's well, Landing? Well, that, that's interesting. I have four children, three uh-huh. girls and a boy. And uh, uh, my wife and we, uh, well, that, getting here is uh, interesting. We moved from Aberdeen. Uh, I became an original, one of the first Honda motorcycle dealers. And uh, uh, so uh, my wife, I'd always promised her, when I married her, I took her to Raymond, Washington. Uh-huh. And then my father died and he moved back. Oh, to, that was a little satellite store that I took out of my father's place. And we were in the sporting goods business and, and the thing. So... Uh, when my father died, the Aberdeen operation was much bigger than the Raymond, so I gave up on that, moved to Aberdeen, took it over, raised my children, bought my homes, and lived there 25 years. Mm-hmm. But I had always promised my wife that I'd take her back to Seattle, where her fa- big, socially prominent family in Seattle. Uh-huh. And so... Uh, at that point, I didn't want to go back to Seattle. Seattle was exploding. Aberdeen was getting smaller. But I said I would go to Olympia. She says, all right, I'll take Olympia. <laughs> sure. It took her 10 years looking at homes before she broke me down. <laughs> and so uh, we bought a home, uh-huh. a very nice home at Holiday Hills uh-huh. on Ward Lake in Olympia by Olympia High School because uh, my son was just high school age and mm-hmm. we wanted him in the, to transplant so we moved him in his junior year and then I just my uh, drove back to Aberdeen for 10-15 years mm-hmm. then after Jeff graduated high school and college he came back and took over the store and the Honda thing was going much better and so he and this was 1985, and uh, I was going to do what I did. To, my father didn't want him to do the same thing to me as uh, moving in on a one-man operation. It uh, wasn't so good. That's why I satellited the store. Sure. Raymond. So anyhow, I, I said, all right, Jeff. Uh, you're taking over your new ideas and your new doings. I'll retire. And so I did. In 1985, I gave him, let him run the whole business. He says the, sport, the Honda business now has grown up. It's big enough to be on its own, and we don't need the complications of a sporting goods store along with it. So he closed that out. And then it was five more years we had an opportunity to move the Aberdeen operation to Olympia. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, Aberdeen is going down from 25000 to Twelve, fifteen thousand. 15,000. Olympia is expanding. The, uh, Thurston County is now 200,000. Grace Harbor is still 50,000. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the only growth there is basically is Ocean Shores, Westport, the beaches, the recreational right. areas. Right. So the best thing we did was move and finally move the shop to Olympia. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, listen, I want to thank you for your service, and I want to thank you for sharing your story because uh, these stories are valuable, and uh, we appreciate your time telling us. This has been a special Honoring Veterans presentation of Answers for Elders, brought to you by Carriage. For more information about Carriage, the website is careage.com. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors. From fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.